This morning we had a a special meeting uh, during our fellowship hour, that's our Sunday school hour, um, so that I could share the news that um, I may be potentially called to serve as the senior pastor of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church, which is where I'm from originally. Um, It might be the one place on uh, the face of this earth that might pronounce my last name correctly. Um, This is a French last name, Cajun French. Um, But during that time, I I spoke about some of the opening verses in this passage that we're going to read from Philippians. Um, it's on page 12 of your worship folder, uh, Philippians 1, 1 through 8. And um, there Paul describes the joy that he has for these people that he's writing to, the partnership they've shared in the gospel, and he shares his deep feelings for these people, um, for this congregation. I couldn't think of a more appropriate um, few verses to share uh, for that conversation this morning. And if you're visiting this morning or if this is news to you um, afterwards, feel free to come up to to me and ask me about it. What was all that confusing stuff you were talking about at the beginning? be glad to talk to you. But This morning's reading comes from these verses, and while I talked about a number of those verses in our fellowship hall this morning, I'm really going to focus our attention on verse 6 of this passage, but I want to read the whole thing together. So let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. I'll read, and you can follow along if you look at your worship folder on page 12. This is God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's go before Him now and ask for His help before we talk about this passage. Most gracious Heavenly Father, um, we pray that You would pour out Your Spirit, that we might not only understand Your Word this morning, but that it would be applied to our hearts, um, that you would change us by it. Father, we confess together that we all have gathered into this room and we've all come from a variety of different places in life, some of us fearful, others of us excited to be here, some of us bitter at life circumstances, others of us suffering and still others full of faith and others full of doubt and skepticism. 
But Father, we pray that you would remind us this morning from your word that we really are all the same. We are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so together we need to hear the good news of the gospel this morning. To be reminded that though we are far more broken than we can imagine, we are also, because of Jesus' person and work, far more loved and accepted and approved of and delighted in than we could have ever dreamed possible. Help us by your Spirit to see this with the eyes of faith. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'll start a little differently this morning um, by telling you uh, stories of three individuals, um, and I'll try to be brief in the telling of, of each of their stories. But the first story is about a woman, um, and her name was Lydia. And Lydia was a successful, um, influential businesswoman in her community, and she was also extremely religious. You can imagine somebody who goes through all their religious checklists to make sure they're doing everything right, uh, always at worship, always at every prayer meeting, never absent, but despite all of this religious activity in her life, uh, she was lost. Um, Her heart was cold. And it was closed. And then one day, someone came. Someone came and preached the gospel to her. And God opened her close heart. And all of a sudden, everything became very clear that though she had been religious, she was dead. It was only when God came and opened her heart that she came to believe the good news of the gospel and came to life. The second story is about a slave girl. Um, This poor girl was enslaved in more ways than one. She was owned by cruel men who used her to make a profit for themselves. But they only made a profit on her because of a deeper slavery in her life. She was possessed by an evil spirit, and she went around telling people's fortunes in this town that she lived in, and that was how these men made money off of her. And then one day, this preacher came to her town, and she followed him around relentlessly and heckled him uh, in the streets until one day this preacher rebuked the spirit in her. Um, and commanded that spirit to come out of her in Jesus' name, and it did. And she was free for the first time in her life. A life of slavery, and in a moment, she was set free. Jesus broke the power that was destroying her life and set her free. The third and last story is about, is about a jailer. Um, in his prison were two missionaries. These missionaries had come into his city and were preaching the good news of the gospel, and that gospel was setting people free, like this slave girl. And that gospel was changing people, and it was interfering with the status quo. Slave girls were being set free, and it was changing the bottom line of certain men's businesses. 
And so these missionaries were locked in a jail cell not to cause any more trouble. Well, in the middle of the night as they sat in that jail cell, there was a violent earthquake. And it rattled the jail, and the doors flew open, and the shackles on the prisoners fell off. And that jailer was expecting this massive outbreak, but instead no one left. And when he saw these missionaries waiting on him, he fell down at their feet and he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was as simple as their question, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That night, a man who had been charged with locking up the gospel so that it wouldn't interfere was himself set free. Many of you figured it out. Um, The stories of these three individuals are the stories of the first three Christian converts in a city named Philippi. Paul and Silas had gone to Philippi to preach the gospel. And these stories, you can read them in detail, are all in Acts chapter 16. My favorite part was the one, if you read the stories, with the slave girl where it says that Paul got annoyed with her, heckling him, so he rebuked the spirit. I just love the fact that Paul got annoyed at certain things. Um, but it's a story about how, and you can read these words, how they met Lydia and, and how Acts chapter 16 says that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the message, her cold heart, how this tortured enslaved girl had been set free by Jesus' power, how Paul and Silas had proclaimed the gospel to this Philippian jailer who sought to slow down the gospel or shut down the gospel, and he fell down at their feet asking what to do to be saved. Here's what I'm saying. It would be very foolish of you and I to try to read this letter to the Philippians in some kind of detached, impersonal kind of way because Paul was writing to his old friends. He was writing to Lydia and to this slave girl and to this jailer and the rest of the church at Philippi. You know, but one thing we ask when we hear things like this and we hear those stories is we think, yeah, but 2,000 years later, can we relate to any of this stuff? Well, some of you know exactly what it's like to be a Lydia and to fill your lives up with religious activity but be dead inside, not really knowing God at all. Others of us know exactly what it's like to be enslaved by certain sins. You know what it's like to hunger in your life for freedom and for change. Still others of you know exactly what it's like to run from Jesus, to feel the threat that He'll interfere, that He'll inconvenience you, that He'll disrupt the status quo if you fall at His feet. And here's the good news. This gospel that is for people like Lydia and a slave girl and a jailer, it's also for us because we're no different. He wrote to them and us, Philippians 1 verse 6, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to do two things this morning. I want you to imagine 
how Lydia and that slave girl and that jailer would have heard this letter from their friend, Paul. And I also want you to imagine how those words might have the power to change you too if you could believe them. So here we go. There's just three brief things that I want to mention this morning. Who is at work? What is the work? And what is the purpose of the work? Who is at work? What is the work? What is the purpose of the work? First, who is at work? In Philippians 1.6, Paul was saying, it really, really matters who is at work. God began this work in you, he says. He's the one who opens closed hearts to believe the gospel and sets people free. Who is at work really, really matters. Listen, some of you know that this past fall, we did a big project where we renovated our fellowship hall to be able to use that space for ministry opportunities in in the future. And as a part of that renovation, we needed to hang some uh, some sound panels on the walls, and we needed to get some molding around the windows. And so you know what I did? I called a member of our church, uh, Daniel Wunro. Um, many of you know him. But you know the reason I called him? Because who is at work really matters. And I knew he would get it done, and he would get it done right. Now, you contrast that with me. Um, When we moved to Memphis nine years ago, I told my wife that I really wanted to buy one of these fixer-upper houses. And um, I had been watching a lot of DIY network, and I felt I could handle it. Um, But very, she's a very smart woman, um, and she knows who is at work matters. So she said no, um, because she knew I'd start 10 projects and not get those done. And the ones that I did think I got done wouldn't be done right. Um, Who is at work matters. So what doesn't Paul say? What does he not say to the Philippians in verse 6? He doesn't say, I'm confident. He doesn't do the southern thing, right? I'm confident because I know you're good people. I'm sure of this because you're a good guy. You're a good girl. Or or, or he doesn't say, I'm sure of this and I'm confident of this because I know you're really sincere, or I know you're really disciplined, or because I know you're not quitters. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying to his friends of the Philippians that my confidence for you has nothing to do with you. And that's unbelievably freeing to realize that. He's saying, I'm confident, I'm sure of this because of the one who is at work in you is God himself, and he has never left a project half-finished. And he always finishes what he starts, and he always does it perfectly. He begins the work, he carries the work, he completes the work. And I'm asking you this morning, what if you could believe that in your life? How much freer would you be? What if you could really and truly rest in that? Paul says, my confidence for you has nothing to do with you. My confidence is in God who is at work in you. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is in that Chronicles of Narnia series of his, there was this character named Eustace, um, and Eustace was just awful. Nobody liked Eustace. Uh, He couldn't get along with anybody. He was spoiled. He was greedy. He was just this self-absorbed, self-centered little brat. And one day, Eustace woke up, and he had been changed. 
He had been transformed into a dragon. And see, the picture there is that his outward appearance all of a sudden matched his insides, matched his horrible, terrifying, beastly heart within. And he realized what he had become. And so he tried to fix himself. He repeatedly tried to tear the dragon skin off of him with his dragon claws, but he couldn't do it. So one evening, the lion Aslan, uh, who is Lewis's picture of Jesus in these stories, the lion came to Eustace, and Aslan said to Eustace this, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace said that he was so afraid of Aslan's claws, but he was desperate. And so he laid down on his back, and he let Aslan do it. And then this is what he used to said when he was retelling the story to his friends. He said the very first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And with that, he was a new boy again. He was reborn. He was transformed. He was different. Where he had been spoiled and greedy and self-absorbed, now there was a new humbleness about him and kindness and compassion and selflessness. Eustace couldn't fix himself no matter how hard he tried. And in the end, he had to stop and be still and put his life in Aslan's hands or Aslan's claws. Paul is assuring his friends, my confidence for you has nothing to do with you and your ability or your effort. My confidence is in the one who can really change you, the one who can penetrate to the depths of your very heart and tear off the dragon skin and make you new. Can you learn the freedom of resting in the one who is at work in your life? Can you rejoice in it? Can you hope in it? Can you believe it for yourself? And can you believe it for others? The one who is at work really matters. He's never left the project half finished. He always finishes what he starts. And he always does it perfectly. Second, Let's talk about what this work is, right? It's God who's at work, but what is this work that he is doing? C.S. Lewis, last time he gets mentioned this morning, um, he also famously wrote in his work, Mere Christianity, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. Lewis was saying, God's work is redemption and transformation. God is, he's saying God isn't after mere mechanical um, behavioral change and outward improvement in your life, but he is after deep inside-out transformation. Right? He's about changing who you are, not just what you do. See, Paul wrote to his Philippian friends that this work that God is doing 
It is inside of us, right? He who began a good work in you. Henry Skugel wrote a letter. I guess that's how you say his name. I have no idea. Wrote a letter. I mean, he's like, he was in the 1600s, so nobody knows how to pronounce his name. Um, anyway, he wrote a letter to explain Christianity to this friend of his in the 1600s, and it later got turned into a book. Um, but what, what this man, because I'm not going to try and pronounce his name again, wrote to his friend was this. He said, this is what Christianity is. Christianity is the life of God in the soul of man. And I love that definition. It's God's work inside of you. He came to turn creatures into sons. He came to create a new kind of man, a new kind of woman. He is at work inside of us, transforming us from the inside out, changing who you are, not just changing what you do. Why was Eustace so ineffective in peeling off his dragon scales? I mean, he had claws, and Aslan had claws, but his claws couldn't get deep enough. What did he say about Aslan's claws, though? The first tear was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. God is after the deepest parts of you, the core of who you are. He is after your desires. He is after your loves. He is after your joys. He is after your hopes. We've all had moments in life, moments of, I'll call them sober reflection, right? When we look in the mirror, metaphorically, and we know that we are not what we want to be. I mean, you may be here this morning, and you may not be a Christian this morning, but you felt that too. This hunger for the hope of change, real change, to grow, to become something different. In those sober moments of reflection, we all know this. We're just shadows of what we were meant to be. But we also know this, to really and truly change, it has to be changed from the inside out. Because anything less than that is hypocrisy and inauthenticity. The hope of the gospel is that God has come to change who you are. And that work God is doing is inside of you. Thirty-something years ago, I had a friend whose father was really into cars. I'm not into cars, but he was. And he went, this, this father of my friend went and bought this old, rusted-out 1931 Ford. Uh, I don't know what model it was. I I don't know anything about that, but it was basically a piece of junk. Um, It was a heavy piece of metal that couldn't run. He paid $200 for that metal. Um, And then he got to work on it and he started working on it and did over the next 15 years of his life, he worked on that car, rebuilding it. It was always in the shop getting worked on, it seemed. New engine, custom molds, and custom paint for everything. He spent, he paid $200 for that piece of junk. He spent over a quarter million dollars fixing that 1931 Ford up into this hot rod. Initially, it didn't run. And then it ran from zero to 60 in four seconds. He used to do this little thing in town where he would put these kids in the passenger seat and he would tape a $100 bill on the dashboard. He said, if you can get that before I get to 60, it's yours. And nobody ever got it. Um, 
It was amazing. People would contact him and say, we want to put it in a calendar, right? It's so beautiful. Fifteen years. A quarter of a million dollars to turn a rusted piece of junk into a thing of beauty. Years ago, I remember reading a sermon from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he just made what was almost a throwaway comment, and he said something about divine alchemy. Alchemy in the Middle Ages was this science of trying to figure out how to turn lead into gold. Um, That's what this work is. God is turning his people into gold from the inside out. He's making us more like Jesus. He's transforming us into a thing of beauty. And listen, my friend's dad spent untold, an untold amount of resources and time, money, and energy to transform that 1931 Ford into a thing of beauty. What resources are at God's disposal in his divine alchemy to turn you from lead into gold, changing you into a man or woman of real beauty? Every circumstance in your life, every event, every relationship, every joy, every pain, every heartache, every heartbreak, everything that has happened to you in this life or will happen to you in this life, none of it is ever wasted in his hands. He is using it all not just to change your behavior, but to change who you are, to reshape your loves and your desires and your hopes and your joys and to make you more like Jesus. All right, finally, let's talk about what the purpose of this work is. It's God who's at work, and he's at work transforming us from the inside out, but why is he doing it? What is the purpose of his work? The end of verse 6 tells us that God will bring this work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is that day? It's the day when Jesus will come again. It's the day when Jesus will return And this incredible work of perfecting and glorifying and making us like Jesus will be completed. The Bible uses a lot of different images to talk about that day, um, this day of Christ Jesus. One of those images is of a wedding, right? A picture of Jesus, the bridegroom, coming for his bride, the church. John, in the book of Revelation, used this image to describe his vision on that day and of that day. He wrote in Revelation 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. One of the blessings of my job, my profession, um, is that I've had a lot of opportunities to officiate a lot of weddings. Um, And as you know, a lot of preparation goes into a wedding day. But not all preparation for that day is equal, because I've seen it every time. Um, It basically takes the groom and groomsmen 15 minutes to get ready on their wedding day, to put their tuxes on. It would take 10 minutes, but a lot of these guys can't figure out how to put their cufflinks on. Um, (laughs) But the bride, she's been getting ready for days. 
she's been to the hairdresser, and they've done a trial run on her hair, a stinking trial run on her hair. Um, She's got her nails done. The day of, she's got people helping her with her makeup, helping her with her hair, helping her with her dress. She's prepped for hours and hours compared to the groom's 15 minutes. And then, you know, on the day of the wedding, the groom and the groomsmen usually enter in with the preacher, and they, they walk in front of the sanctuary, um, and, and then eventually the bridesmaids start to process down the middle aisle and come to the front, and it's just building this anticipation for the bride, right? And everyone wants to finally see the bride in her wedding dress. And so at last, the wedding director throws open those back doors, and there she is, and she begins to process forward. Um, And everybody stands and turns to look at her and see her, right? And she's beautiful, and she's glorious, and she's radiant, and maybe I'm the only one who notices, notices this because of my vantage point being at the front of the sanctuary, but, but I don't think I'm the only one that notices this. Because as soon as everyone has gotten a look at the bride, they look at the groom, right? Heads turn to see him. What are they looking to see? They want to see his face the moment he sees her. They want to see him beaming in delight over his beautiful bride. Listen, God himself is at work in you. And he's changing you from the inside out into this beautifully radiant bride who is ready to meet her bridegroom, Jesus, face to face. And to be awash in him beaming in delight over his people. You know it's true. (laughs) Look, he's never left a project half finished. He always does what he does perfectly. I mentioned this at a lot of weddings that I officiate. There are two weddings in the Bible that stand as bookends to the whole story of God's redemption. The first wedding was in the Garden of Eden. Right, God brought the woman to the man, and it was glorious completion. It was joy. It was satisfaction. It was all those things. But five minutes later, it feels Adam has fallen on his face, and he has failed as a groom, and he has plunged the whole world into ruin, sin, and darkness. But God's promise from the beginning of time was to send another groom, one better than the first Adam, one whom Paul calls the second Adam. And that's exactly what he did. He sent his own son Jesus into the world to purchase a bride through his life, death, and resurrection. Where the first Adam failed and brought death, the second Adam succeeded and brought life, and God always finishes what he starts, and he always does it perfectly. He's at work in us, changing us, making us ready for the day of Christ Jesus. That day when John tells us in Revelation 21, when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. And in that day, you will see him face to face. 
and you will see him beaming in love over his people. Let me ask you as as we end here, were you able to imagine anything? Were you able to imagine someone standing up in this first century church and reading this letter of Paul to his friends, and maybe out of the corner of your mind's eye, as it were, you catch Lydia who's on the edge of her seat, and she's being reminded that only God could open her closed heart, that it was God himself who was at work in her. Or maybe you catch a glimpse of a former slave girl with tears cutting tracks in her cheeks, as she's reminded of the one who set her free and transformed her from the inside out. Or maybe you see this jailer nodding his head in agreement because he knows the work isn't finished yet. But one day, one day someday, it will be, and he will see his Savior's face beaming in love over him. And what about you? Can you imagine how these truths might change you? how they might set you free and give you rest and give you hope and give you life. The one at work is God himself. He's at work to change you from the inside out, and he's doing it all so that you are ready to meet your bridegroom face to face, awash in his beaming delight over you. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word this morning. We pause to give you thanks because again and again, you remind us of your grace, you remind us of your mercy, you remind us of your love for your people, you remind us of Jesus who came into this world to turn creatures into sons, not to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man, a new kind of woman. Father, would you give us great freedom, the freedom that comes from knowing it is you, the God of heaven and earth, who is at work in us, and that you are indeed at work in us to make us more like Jesus, and you are preparing us for the day when we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.